Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. Thanks so much for joining us here on this program that brings you New Paradigms for a New World. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We are here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. We have a 9 a.m. broadcast on Wednesdays, and then for the month of December, we're going to be here five days a week, Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 a.m. So I hope you'll join us for these very special programs throughout the month of December. Uh, we uh, are um, streaming live at all of these times at richarddugan.com. We podcast all of our programs, all of these conversations on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, a whole lot of different places across uh, the width and breadth of this great internet we call the web, <clears throat> which has no beginning nor end nor any defined boundaries for that matter. We're also on YouTube where you can watch these conversations. We hope you'll subscribe to either or both the podcasts or video casts and at least no, uh, click notification so that when a new conversation is placed up on these platforms, you'll be notified so that you can tune in. We ask that if you can support us financially, we would be gratefully appreciative. We have a PayPal account. It is there for your security as well as ours. And um, the email address they'll ask for that you'll want to put in is richard at richarddugan.com. That's richard at richarddugan.com. We also ask that you take time during this, the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, to go within to spend time in that quiet, peaceful, calm, still place and listen to that still small voice. And I guarantee you today's program, we're going to be talking about that as well with a former educator, tutor, educational tutor, I should say, small business owner and part-time freelance news and feature articles writer, uh, Mary H. Reagan is my guest, resident here in the United States, is uh, in Massachusetts, Um, you, um, I'm, I'm really happy to have you here on the program to talk about your latest work, your memoir. We seem to be doing a lot of uh, interviews with folks who have written their memoirs. I better get with the program. I'm 63, and uh, I haven't written mine yet. Life Flashes, a memoir. Thank you for being with us here today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk with you and to be with everyone, Richard. Um, you know, it's it's really interesting to to talk with people who have chosen uh, at this time to write their memoirs. Uh, my father really wasn't a writer. He lived to be uh, almost 90, almost made it to 92, <laughs> passed away last this past March. <clears throat> and um, I would I would have to just put recollections of of the 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 memories I have of my experiences with my father in my memoirs or memoir, I guess you should say. And I chuckle at some folks who weigh, uh, who actually write their memoirs when they're still in their late twenties or thirties or forties, and I'm thinking, wait a minute. Uh, usually, you have had to have lived a little while, you know, at least into your fifties before. But uh, you know, I'm okay. You're going to give us volumes two and three when you get older. I hope. What made you decide to write your memoir? Well, like you, I used to, I, I, I've chuckled too with people that, you know, were writing in the memoir in the twenties and then, but also then writing a second and third memoir because I grew up believing that you write a, you know, you, the memoir is your, the last book you write before you die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, die, you know, and, uh, but I, I didn't intend to write a memoir at all. I didn't intend to write a book. I started writing a diary in, 
2007. Uh, and three years later, I thought, I think this is a book. I'm going to continue on with it until it's finished. Had I known then that it was going to be another 11 years before I finished writing it, I probably would not have completed it. So I'm glad I didn't know that. <laughs> now, you consider yourself a keen, a keen observer of life, uh, as do I. I like to preface most of my comments by saying my observation is because I don't put any of my philosophy on anybody else. It's mine. You like it or you don't like it. Doesn't matter to me. It's mine. Uh, I don't tell other people how to live, uh, but I find the paradoxes, the dichotomies that are out there or what have you. And sometimes they can be ironic. Uh, those are the things that I observe and that I comment on. It's like, you're kidding me. You do not see the forest for the trees. Okay. And it's right there in front of you. Are, are those some of your, uh, some of your observations as you go, have gone through your life thus far uh, that you just kind of marvel at uh, mankind's um, inability <laughs> to see what's right in front of them. That just makes more sense than what maybe they have been told over maybe from their childhood, the beliefs that they've carried with them? Well, I think, um, I think people experience life in different ways. Um, as a, I tend to be a person who is uh, internal. Mm -hmm. I learn I, uh, social versus uh what do you, what do you, I'm lost for words. Um, what do you call a person who is primarily goes in introvert? I'm an introvert. And at times I, though I don't particularly care, care for that. It is, it is, I think we're all a little bit of both. We're all introverted to some extent and extroverted to another people who are introverts um, experience life largely through observation and internal, internal stirrings, whereas people who are extroverts experience life largely through connecting with others in conversation. Mm. So, and we're all, we're all a little bit of both. Um, I think it's been an interesting, I, I think it's been a really interesting journey. I think that we all experience life in certain ways, uh, and yet there are um there are universal truths that cannot be compromised there are, and i think that um that's that's true there are universal truths that that are just you know they're true for everybody it doesn't matter mm -hmm. one of the things i find fascinating in that regard is um <clears throat> one of the conversations I've had on this program has to do with uh, one's own truth that they believe in and that everybody has their own truth. And yet at the same time, as you just uh, said, uh, there are some some truths out there, universal, if you will. Um, I'm not sure if the word immutable is is quite accurate, but nonetheless, um, 
I've got a couple that I've come up with, and I don't know whether they're accurate or not, but uh, that as far as the universe is concerned, there is always an exchange. When you, I mean, it's just kind of like, what is it? Uh, Einstein's, um, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. That's the same thing. Uh, without a giver, there cannot be a receiver and vice versa. Um, my father gave me my comeuppance once. Talk about ironies. Um, sent me some money for something. I can't remember exactly. And I said, oh, dad, you shouldn't have. He says, well, of course I shouldn't have. I wanted to. So just, you know, <laughs> it's his money. He can do with it what he wants. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I, from that point forward, anytime my parents ever sent me anything, I would just say, thank you. Thank you very much. I would never. Oh, you shouldn't have. And yet we do that all the time with people who are generous to us, who are very gracious in their their abundance and their prosperity in whatever form it takes, even if it's just their time. Uh, and they do it just at the maybe at the spur of the moment, that kind of thing. To me, that's one of those universal laws or truths, if you will. What are some of the ones that you have discovered? Well, I discovered when I began, you know, about the time that I began writing the book that um, without without a relationship with God or a transcendent being, you can't um, you can't fully. No person can truly be successful, no matter how you experience God and being meaning successful meaning being at, at peace and. Um, I, at the time that the book opened, I was very seriously ill and I was, I was near gravely ill. And I went outside one morning on a January morning, I was very lightly dressed and I thought, I don't think I can, I don't think it can go on much longer this way, being this ill. And at the time I didn't realize it, but I believe God was talking with me because all of a sudden I said, no, I don't. And I believe that I was responding to a question that I was being asked. Is this how you want your life to end? And I said, no, I don't. And so then I began uh, talking with God about why, you know, why I had been ill for so many years and things I didn't, I did that I didn't forgive and I didn't believe were forgivable. And I suddenly heard a voice say to me, I forgave you for these things years ago. So I was really overcome and I was, tears were coming down this face. And I said, well, I, um, I, it was, it was, it was, I was walking in early morning darkness at 5 a.m. And I, I turned onto the street called High Street. And I said, but Lord, I don't know how to go on. I don't know. I can't hold a job. I have difficulties with relationships. I'm not financially stable. And in the darkness of early morning light, I felt a spiritual, I saw a spiritual hand reach down to me composed of bright white light. And I heard God say to me, come with me, I'll show you how to live again. Mm. And on that day, I stopped ingesting prescription meds that I had been prescribed for two years. And I haven't ever been on them since. Boy, you're so not without God, I would not, there isn't, um, Without God, I I I would not. I, a I wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. I know I wouldn't have been able to overcome that. And um, 
I wouldn't be able to be at peace the way I am now and to bear with the times when uh, times be- become difficult again. They become on a regular basis. They become, they become difficult again. So, but I just, um, I, I, as miserably as I do, I do trust in God and it enables me to, you know, to bear with it, to bear with the, 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 to bear with the discouragement, to bear with the disillusionment and just put one foot in front of the other and um, be at peace. Yeah. And a lot of times that requires us to be um, uh, discerning of the, uh, from the outside world, uh, discerning of those we surround ourselves with because they can have either a beneficial or a rather malevolent effect on our own psyche, on our own, what I like to call uh, glasses half full versus glasses half empty um, philosophical bent, if you will. I I consider uh, glasses half full, although I question what's the glass full of? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I mean, little Irish cream, I'll take that, you know, uh, my favorite well, beverage. Uh, I think um, it's um, it's important to, you know, it's important to set limits with people no matter mm-hmm. how. And it's also important to be, um, I disagree with the notion that there are toxic people. I find that offensive to say mm-hmm. about a person um, because people who are, we are, you know, we might, a person might turn, they're, they're, they're sick. They're ill. They are, um, they are in deserving of your prayer and if, if and you you know it may be difficult to be around them and that's perfectly acceptable. But you can you know the what what really holds a relationship together, whether the relationship is going well or struggling or struggling, is goodwill. That's really people say. Oh, it's all about how compatible you are. How. How much time you spend together? This is what mm-hmm. the world tells you all the time. It's mm-hmm. not. Yeah. Does that yeah. influence it? Yes, but it does it control it? No, it doesn't. And if you can be um, ex- experience goodwill toward another person, um, no matter what the circumstances are, again, it's not about circumstances. It includes if you can be experience peace and goodwill toward a person, what this what the circumstances of relationship that you share are you will be able to, that relationship will persevere. Mary Reagan is my guest. Her book, her memoir is Life Flashes a Memoir, which invites you, the reader, to re-examine divine existence and at the same time to reassess numerous aspects of life, both past and current. Uh, this book is uh, is available uh, through Amazon as well, and will also be linked to her website, uh, Mary H. Reagan. That's M E R R I E H R E A G A N dot com. Again, will be linked to that website, and uh, we are talking with her here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, it is a pleasure to have uh, uh, Mary Reagan on uh, Reagan on the program. Um, one of the the aspects of um, what we want to talk about on this particular program, because as we said at the front end of the program, it seems like a lot of folks are writing their memoirs. What was your process in just getting started? Because I remember, strangely enough, 22 years ago when I first started writing my book, which is a small little thing, 
uh, called Choices. Um, uh, I know I've seen a lot of instructional videos and other things online about, okay, here's what you want to do. Step one, two, three, four, five. And I didn't do any of those. You know what I'm saying? I didn't do any of those. And um, (laughs) I'm not sure what went wrong because I'm still working on the book, still trying to get it uh, uh, squared away. So what was your process in that regard? Well, let me talk about a process in terms of um, I didn't, I, 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 well, first of all, I didn't intentionally start to do it. I just sat down and started doing, but I think I, when I think of writing, I think of the characteristics that developed in me, three characteristics that character building uh, characteristics that it has developed in within me. One is uh, discipline, mm-hmm. determination and devotion, discipline, because as a young person, I thought, Oh, discipline, that's just monotonous, routine, no bearing, I boring. I I don't I confess I and then as I've matured and especially as a writer, I've seen that discipline is a form of love. I.e., you know, sitting setting aside time every day, or you know, it depends upon the writer. Somebody might be every day, somebody might be every other day. That's between you and um you and you and God, mm-hmm. uh, what you uh, uh, and and then accepting responsibility. So setting aside the time to do to write, and then accepting responsibility for what you are writing. In other words, not becoming overly focused on potential readers or your book subjects or you as an author. Remaining detached—that is your responsibility to your audience, and. Finally, um, regularly reviewing what you write, because I found a lot of um, on a number of occasions I would write something. I'd say, yeah, that's true. That Well, that's good. And I'd look at it three weeks later. I said, oh, yeah, that's good. Do not put that in the book. It's too it's too, (laughs) you know, it's too revealing. You you know, it's very important. And I think it's very um, important that you that authors be respectful of their audiences and not draw them too deeply into um, into things that are beyond their ability to handle. And mm-hmm. I find that that people, uh, there are writers who do that on a regular basis and it's not, it's not, uh, it's not effective writing. Okay. Let me, and let it, me ask you about that. Then how do you make that determination as to uh, what the reader can handle? I, 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 it almost goes to, uh, this whole concept of, for example, the government isn't going to tell us certain things because we can't handle it. Well, who are you to determine what we can and cannot handle, government? So how do you how do you go about making that determination? Because that's that's a, a big responsibility in one sense. Well, I I don't I don't do it alone. For one thing, I know I can't handle it alone. I ask for a prayer. I, I ask for help. Mm-hmm. I ask for divine guidance. And I just think I don't want to um, disrespect anyone, mm-hmm. period. You don't, you may not agree with them. And it doesn't mean because you're setting limits, people think, oh, you know, they, that you can't talk about difficult things. But um, you, you can. It's your responsibility to talk about difficult things. But it's also it's your responsibility as a writer to talk about those things and respect everyone who's involved regardless mm-hmm. of any personal feelings period 
And in doing so, it actually enlightens your audience and it clarifies this, the issues that you want to discuss because they're not about you or your feelings mm-hmm. about somebody or somebody else. It's about, um, I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one summer, uh, family members came, came from out of state uh, to visit with one another. And then um, some came from England, some came from uh, Pennsylvania, some came from Texas, and then all of a sudden, everybody left. No word, no nothing. And um, at first, I was upset about it, so I didn't go into the you know um, I didn't go into the details of it because um, it wasn't it wouldn't help the audience anyway. You know, oh, speculating as to why I don't know why. How do I know? Yeah. But but what I did find it bothered me at first in the night, and then I remembered when I was a when I was a an adjunct instructor at a at a at a community college. Um, I was doing a, a teaching class on business communication, and I remember this textbook I was using, and it said ninety three point three percent of the meaning of what people say to one another is clarify through nonverbal signals, mm-hmm. not words. And if people are are uh, questioning the, the veracity of what a person's saying, they don't rely on words. They rely on nonverbal cues. And I found that fascinating. And so what, what that said to me is that um, when, you know, people left, it said the relationship's changing, the old way of relating it wasn't, you know, it probably was not the most healthy way to do things, but it was they, what they were saying is that the old way of relating to one another is passing away. Mm. It's not working anymore. And people go through this, these kinds of cycles, whether they're living together or not on a, on a regular basis. And so, um, and so that's passing away. So it's important in the meantime to maintain a sense of goodwill with the um, and not, you know, blame. Blaming is just a way of avoiding responsibility. Period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just being respectful. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes the people themselves don't. They don't know. They just know that um, they then something's changed. They can't. They don't know how to talk about it. They don't know how to. They haven't. They're not able to process it. They're grieving. They go. Maybe it's not. You know. Maybe it's not always. Uh, um. A, a preferable way to handle it, but that's how they, that's how they do it. So it's important to um, just respect that that the old way is passing away and that a new way is emerging and that it's important to be kind and respectful and cooperative in the meantime. Hmm. Make sense? Yeah, it, it, indeed. It does make sense. Yeah. Uh, a yeah. matter of fact, um, I've often said this about um, <clears throat> my, my career in broadcasting when I started at the age of 19 and uh, started doing interviews shortly thereafter and have been doing them ever since, that if anybody had really been following my uh, career, my interviews and so forth and taking notes, th- by this time, they would probably be able to write my unauthorized uh, biography because I share about me. Now, mm-hmm. the one rule I really work hard to try to adhere to is I don't share about someone else's experience that I may have been in the presence of. 
because that isn't my story. That's mm-hmm. theirs. Mm-hmm. And so I tried only to relate what I have experienced in my life. I'm curious as to the, shall we call it the vetting process? I love these different words for this vetting, parsing. Well, I love just la- the language and, and, and the words that are available. But what was that process for you in terms of saying, uh, no, I won't tell them about this, but I will tell them about that. And I, I say, I ask this question in light of our current social media where people are out and about and they take snapshots of, like I really care, their food that they're eating. I don't care what you're eating. Plus the fact you probably took a horrible picture that gives the restaurant that you're at a horrible reputation because you don't know how to take pictures of food. Now that's a sidebar thing. Uh, but that that seems to me also to be a, a challenge as well because my perspective, and again, this is the reason why I've shared so much about myself on my program on these programs. God already knows. So, what difference does it make if eight billion other people know? Most of them don't care. They're too busy just living their lives. How did you? How did you do that? How did you decide? This is in. This is out. Well, uh, I just, I, again, mostly I just, I did what I felt led to do. I mean, I didn't, a lot of the experiences I had, I mean, I didn't, I didn't think I'd end up being at the JFK library a number of times and meeting, um, meeting people such as, uh, former first lady Rosalind Carter and, um, a former president Barack, I didn't meet him there, but, uh, former president Barack Obama, um, men, people who, you know, people that I, that I wouldn't meet whose lives are very different, but yet very similar. It was just a fascinating experience to be able to go there. Mm-hmm. And, um, Charles Gibson, who was, uh, he was an, he was a, uh, longtime anchor for ABC and he was at the desk on the morning of September 11th. He was reporting and all of a sudden, <sighs> Um, they, they they received this video in that, you know, that there was something going on at the World Trade Center. They're looking at it off, you know, off air. And the producers are frantically running around trying to verify that, the you know, the video's uh, good to, you know, the good adequate. And they verified and then all of a sudden they say to Charlie Gibson and uh, Diane Sawyer, you're on the air. And these, you know, they've just seeing these planes barreling into the, uh, the twins. They, they, I think it was just the first one that they, when they first came on. Mm-hmm. And um, I can't imagine what that experience must've been like for them to be sitting at that, that and, and then seeing it all of a sudden you're on the air in front of millions of people. And he said, Charlie said that he, for weeks, he said, I mean, I, I don't know why it kind of still makes me a little cheery. He said for weeks after that, when he was on or off the air, he found himself becoming tearful um, because of, he remembered the facial expressions of people that he talked with and, um, you know, events of the day. And, uh, and uh, you know, all the work that I remember was fascinating listening to Roslyn, um, I know she um, 
the late Rosalind Carter, when she came to uh, the JFK Library, all t- talked about all the work that she did with um, to help people with mental illness. Um, she, you know, when I was growing up in the '60s, I mean, so, so many things were going on then. Um, you know, there was the um, TV was new. Mm. TV was only like eight years old. Um, around the time that President Kennedy was assassinated, we had the space race going on. Um, the United the United States uh, was in the space race, and John Glenn had just gone around the gone around the world uh, three times, and then yeah. nineteen I think nineteen sixty two, um, and then they had the Apollo eleven in nineteen sixty nine, men landing on the moon, and um, and so, and then also in the, I mean, in the sixties, as far as, you know, um, people didn't talk about, you know, um, mental illnesses, people, people didn't talk about that. You just, that was not, it was not accepted as, as polite conversation. Right. And the thought of people recovering from mental illness was, I mean, serious, like schizophrenia, that was not, um, you just, you didn't even mention that. And all these years later, you know, she she came to talk about how all the you know um, work that she did to um, she saw people patients living in deplorable conditions in state hospitals. They were overcrowded. You'd have twelve thousand patients in a in a in a hospital that was designed for three thousand people. People over medicated, and uh, and people patients didn't have weren't able to be involved in decisions for their for their care for the most part and she was instrumental with many other people in, in changing that and and the deinstitutionalization of hospitals getting people who are able to be in you know day programs not being hospitalized or being in residential homes so that they would not you know to um to encourage their well-being so um that a lot of things and then also I um I worked with a psychologist for 10 years and he when he started out he was working with people who were schizophrenic and two of the people that he worked with um recovered fully I was like what mm. I said oh how did that happen and he, and he said I said well first of all can you explain to me what schizophrenia is because I think a lot of the terms they use I'm when somebody says oh she's schizophrenic it doesn't really welcome a person to talk with that person it's a, some of the terms are used um, but anyway, he said, well, he said, usually what well, very simply stated, a person who's schizophrenic is somebody who's experienced a very traumatic life event and they can't handle it. So they invent a person that they want to be mm-hmm. instead of that enables them to escape, you know, dealing yeah. with. And so, and I said, well, how did you, because psychologists can't, um, they can't, they, they don't use medication. They're not, they're not allowed to. Right. And, and so I said, well, how would these people heal? He said, I, I believe that they were healed because over time they simply felt that they were heard and they, they began to trust, you know, trust and move forward. And because they trusted again, trusted God, trusted life, they began to go, they were healed and they moved forward. Now, your memoir spans basically about 14 years into 2021, which was, I don't want to say it was the halfway point necessarily, but we were into the pandemic 
and this yeah. is dovetailing off of what you've just stated about mental health and wellness, that many of the conversations I've had on this program having to do with this issue uh, have been that one of the pluses, again, the all, all depends upon your perspective, but one of the pluses of this pandemic has been the fact that we are now talking about mental health and 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 mental health and wellness and it's and and the stigma i do honestly believe is beginning to be uh, broken down if you will because we're having these conversations i mean i i even joke i joke about this but i say okay everybody who is in therapy raise your hand well my hand goes up because a this program for me is therapy but i also have developed a network of people uh, your your observations, your thoughts in that regard, because obviously there has to come a point when we start talking about the things that we have chosen not to talk about. Eventually, something comes along to almost force us to have the conversations. Well, I think what happened, yeah, what happened to me was, uh, you know, when I was very ill, I realized I was. My life was very much defined in terms of what the world, I was always thinking about what the world, you know, a good job, be in a relationship, um, be financially stable, you know, all those things. So that was in the, that was in the front burner of my mind. Mm -hmm. And therefore that's largely why I was ill. There wasn't anything wrong with me except that my priorities were completely, but in my mind, ill mind, they were perfectly normal and natural. And yet I was very ill. So, and then when I began to uh, re, you know, reestablish a relationship with God, which wasn't really ever broken. I just didn't see it. I didn't, I didn't. Um, then when you put a God on the front burner, then you start living through a sense of passion. Mm -hmm. Not, not, not expectation. Once you start living about, once your life becomes about proving, you know, proving I can be in a relationship, proving I can be this um, financially stable, proving I can be this much of a hermit, proving, et cetera, et cetera. Then you're going down the slippery slope. Now, then you're on the way to illness mm -hmm. because it's not about that. Um, and so when you, when life's about just enjoying, um, and I, you know, there are times uh, too when I, um, I slip back into it. I think it's life's going to be better when. No, it isn't. It's when I, life is, life is what it is. And it, it's important for you to be able to enjoy it where you are. And even when it's difficult to, to, to persevere. And once I, once I start getting into that life is better when I start feeling even more ill mm. than I did before. It's not, it's enjoying each day. It's enjoying each day. It's enjoying um, being being alive, being able to. I mean, and I we're we see we all see people around us every day, and I look at them and I say, "Oh my gosh, I could not be you for five minutes." Your life is so much, and it's not to say that the what you're experiencing isn't difficult, but what it does say is that um, you know put things into perspective. I know so. perspe perspective makes a big difference, and I I know that 
Uh, I, I'm not a fan of uh, the the concept of um, misery loves company, and you got to find other people that you can kind of commiserate with in your own misery. No, that's not that doesn't help. My mother, for example, I called her to share with her some stuff that was going on, yeah. and she stopped me mid sentence. She says, "I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it." Now, if you want to call me and talk to me about stuff that's going on, you know, this, that, the other thing, uh, you want advice, you want inspiration, you want uh, some guidance, feel free to call. But I don't want to hear the negative stuff. And at, I, I was taken aback for an instant. And then I realized, oh, she's right. I, I don't need to do that to her or anybody else, especially considering the fact she's still dealing with the loss of her husband. Um. So uh, the next time I, I you, you bring it to, do you bring it to one of the things that um, that helps me too when I talk to people, first of all, I, uh, first of all, I bring it to God to help me figure out what I, because even if you're talking with no matter who, there's a limit. And so I, that, and then also when I, um, when I'm talking with that person, I just say, you know, you're welcome to talk. Don't vent. That's disrespectful. Mm. So um, that that helps me because you then you're just dumping it on a person, and it's um, it's a, kind of a form of anger, yeah. and it's not productive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not productive, and it's they're not responsible for your situation. You know, right, right. So they're there to help you process it. Well, when I when I do using the word vent, when I do, when I have I have a I have a dear friend and he says, hey, let's get together for coffee, get you out of the station, get away from that environment for even if it's just for a half hour and we can chat and so forth. I am the kind of person who takes responsibility for his life. I am where I am because of all of the choices that I have made. No, I am not a victim. I I. I I played that for a short time when I was uh, I, I just out of high school and I was blaming the state specifically of Arizona where I was born and raised for labeling me. They labeled me legally blind. All right. I didn't choose that, you know, uh, and after a while I began to realize what difference does it make what they may or may not have done? What am I doing? Right. What difference am I making in my own life? What choices? And that's what the that's where this program is sort of of uh, spun out from is the the fact that we want to offer people choices and knowledge of those choices, meaning that there are choices you don't even know about, uh, folks that that um, uh, that that Mary Reagan has shared with us that you didn't know even existed. Uh, I often look at it that way and go, okay, I've been to the Cheesecake Factory. I have seen their menu. Okay, that is an abundance of choices, maybe an overabundance of choices. Okay, fine. But, um, you know, pare it down. Uh, If you need to make a decision about something, do some research, do some investigating, go within and listen to the still small voice, whatever it is that you feel that you should do. To know that there are other ways of doing things that maybe you haven't even heard of. Go to the library and read some books. That's the beautiful thing about reading so many different books. You are also a voracious reader, if I'm not mistaken. And that, I'm sure, enlightens you as well. 
Um, well, I wouldn't say I enjoy reading. I wouldn't say I'm a voracious reader, but I'm finding now in life, I think it's important to balance, you know, time you spend being inward and alone with, with community, with people in community. I started recently going to church services again on a regular basis. And I have been in and out of church, um, all through life. And what I'm uh, finding is that I've been so, um, defensive, I think about faith matters Mm. and maybe a little angry, um, maybe, I don't know, fear of commitment that I've been, that I've been pushing the church away instead of I've been, and lately I've been going regularly and I said, you've been so angry and defensive. You don't see all the good stuff that's here. And I just, I, 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 I don't want to, you know, I, a lot of times I find because I think, um, too much, Thinking, thinking isn't always a good thing. <laughs> it's not always a good thing. Um, I, I just been a pleasure to go to church and just sit and be still. What is that mm. from the Bible? Be still and know that I'm God exactly, and not have an agenda. And that's mm. helping me to um, process and, and to, you know, I enjoy all kinds of things. I, you know, I enjoy, I'm a ballroom dance student. I've been a, a serious ballroom dance student for uh seven years and it's really um it's it taught me so much about balance about posture dancing social skills coordination eating habits um i enjoy house cleaning i enjoy working in the yard i enjoy going to movies um you know um but i think it's also really good to uh, going back to the original point that it's really important to balance alone time with being in, in community with people um, because it gets, again, it's, it's, um, personal perspective, perspective is, um, is, is good. It's only a, one piece of the, it's only a piece of the pie. Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah. They're both, I mean, too much community isn't healthy, too much being alone isn't. So balancing both is, is really important. Life flashes a memoir, Mary Reagan, my guest, and you are listening to tell me your story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, this is really a, a, a very fascinating conversation we're having. From my perspective, I'd like to think that uh, you folks are enjoying it as well. I'm curious about um, your 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 upbringing philosophically. I mean, I was born and raised a, a Roman Catholic. I had also the great pleasure after my uh, with my first uh, wife, my first marriage of uh, being introduced to the Eastern Rite of the Catholic Church, still under the Pope. Uh, Byzantine rite of the Catholic Church. It was, and, you know, you talk about seeing the good things. I love, still do, even though I may not be a practicing Catholic anymore, I love the ritual and the ceremony and the traditions. They're, they can be so beautiful and meaningful, especially as we're conversing here around this time of the year with the various holy days and high holy days and so forth. But I'm also intrigued by Judaism in terms of the holidays. Of course, I also found out that Hanukkah was not a major <laughs> holiday or uh, holy day, if you will, or period in the Jewish calendar. But nonetheless, um, I have a great deal of uh, reverence for uh, uh, Judaism. And I'm wanting to learn about all of the different philosophies. Uh, what about your uh, upbringing? 
I would, yeah, I was, I was, um, I was brought up Roman. I was brought up Catholic and some, some, I had recently had a conversation with someone and I was talking about how I don't go to one church. I go to this church for this thing and this church for that thing. And this, just, oh, okay. So now I understand that. Yeah. There are people that we call Roman Catholics and then, but you're what we call a Roman Catholic. So I think that's what you are. <laughs> I think, I think that's it. Um, but I mean, talk about, oh God, talk about changes when we were growing up and you'll remember this too. I mean, I remember going to church on Easter Sunday and kissing the Cardinal's ring. It was a high, it was Easter Sunday. So it's a high mass. They have incest. Cardinal Cushing of Boston is processing toward the back of the room. He extends his uh, hand toward me with a ring and you kissed it. And I remember um, later, I remember that was like the, one of the first times I understood what holy fear was. I mean, mm. he was, he radiated joy. And I remember feeling intensely uncertain and yet feeling no fear that I would be harmed at all. Yeah. And um, so you go from, you know, that and, and um, I mean, there's so many more changes that I'm, that, that I'm, but that, that was that. And then a year later, the Supreme Court says no more prayer in school. I won't get into that, but um, that, that's like, I don't know how that happened, why that happened. I know why it happened, but um, that was, that was profoundly changing to our society. Yeah. Profoundly. And Indeed. still is to this day. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so later on you had the, um, you know, um, there was a clerical, I, uh, it's still painful to, as a Catholic, no matter, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not a I'm not like super religious Catholic, but I mean I love the Catholic Church and it's still painful to me. But I but I also know that I remember listening to a priest say, um, you know, why do he he was he was he knew fellow priests that were involved and he was heartbroken and he wanted to leave the church and he he just said and somebody asked him, well, why didn't you? And he said, because I realize God is much bigger than this. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, and I thought that was a beautiful, beautiful answer. And we've seen, you know, changes, um, women being, are now being considered to be, um, um, you know, deacons, um, there's a papal commission doing that. Um, I think, I hope that at some point they'll, I think there are actually Catholic priests who are married. They are converts. There's only about 125. Mm-hmm. I think it's more of a, it's, um, an issue of people, you know, doing what they believe they're called to do, whether you're married or not, um, whether you're male, or, you know, I mean, there's, I, I interviewed a guy um, in the book who was, he was in the, um, he was, he was in the, he was in the army in 1990. Um, and he was a, uh, he was an officer in the army and he was served in desert storm. And then 2016, uh, he had married, they were, he and the wife were about to have their first child. She had changed jobs. Her income level was potential was two or three times his, they decided he would be the stay at home dad. So he, as of he, as 17 years later, he's still the stay at home dad. He loves it. Mm-hmm. So people, people, you know, I mean, in the sixties, if somebody was, a man was staying home with their kids, they'd be like, what's going on there? Something's wrong. <laughs> right. Uh, 
Um, and so, but it's just, it's, it's just interesting to see the conversation evolve. Um, even this new, um, uh, uh, Pope, I just read the other day that Pope, um, Pope Francis has decided to bless, um, same sex couples. I, mm-hmm. um, and I think, um, he's, I'm a 100% that he's not saying that it's marriage. He's blessing the union. Mm-hmm. which is um which is a beautiful union yeah that's what's intended to be just as people who are companionships why don't we bless companionship why don't we bless con- friendship um and uh, you know when they say same sex I, I mean usually what they mean i think the word gay is a misnomer but usually what they mean and actually the word gay means happy mm-hmm. but um, yeah yeah and and it, it's a misnomer because Usually what people are talking about when they mean gay is that there are two people that are the, the same sex or of the opposite sex who are not biologically related, who are in love, their family, their soul brother and soul sister. Yeah. But that has been that notion, which is thousands of years old, has been so pushed down. People say you say soul brother, soul sister. They say, what? What is that? Yeah. But that's what it is. That's mm-hmm. universally true. And it's and I would write, you know, I mean, there are. When they become soul brothers and soul sisters, they become part of the human family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Using all these other words to isolate them in um, is, is you know as victims. It's it's a not true. It's not healthy. It doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help yeah. the people. It doesn't help anybody around. You know, um, I had the privilege of meeting and actually knowing a priest in the Byzantine Rite. He was Father John, I can't recall his last name. And he was, uh, at that time, and this was back in the 80s, early 80s, um, around the time that I married my first wife. And um, he was the last priest to be allowed to marry when instead of saying when when the when the western rite uh, priests asked hey well, why don't you let us marry like the, the the people like the priests in the eastern rite of the church rather than saying okay sure why not they took away the right from the eastern rite of the catholic church which again was still under the pope it's probably considered orthodox but it is still under the the papacy and i have often thought that if they had allowed priests in the Western rite of the church to marry, then we don't need to go down this road, but I'm just saying, I don't think we would have had the decades that we've had of uh, uh, what everybody is is very much aware of has happened um, with the priests in that regard. If they had, I think, well, I don't know. I don't know about that, but what I, I, it, but I, I would I would venture to say it did influence it has influenced it. Yeah, yeah. But all I do what I do know is that whenever you say to a person, um, you're not um you are not allowed to be married, you don't allow them to make that choice, mm-hmm. it creates an emotional environment of secrecy, mm-hmm. shame, mm-hmm. and guilt. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who in their twenties don't know, then they don't know that they want to be married. Yeah. They have no idea. They don't. They have no idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. And oh, and then there are a lot of people that are in their thirties and forties that you know no don't know they don't want to marriage isn't for them. Yeah. So yeah. it's really not about your and that's really primarily um, 
um, you know, I was, I was taught to be, um, faithful to single life values. Um, when, you know, no matter what, um, you know, whether or not I, whether or not I eventually marry. And I confess I was rebellious of that when I was in younger years. And I, um, but I saw that, um, that it wasn't a punishment, that it was something that was um, a good thing. And mm -hmm. I, but I'm faithful to those values each and every day, not because somebody says I have to be, because I choose it. Yeah. I choose it. If yeah. I want to be married, I can be married, but no one, no, no institution is going to say to me, I just, I just, again, I just think it creates very, um, um, very unhealthy environment and, a, and a, just a certain, it's a certain way of, it comes across as they want, you know, they just a certain way they want religion to look. Yeah. You know, yeah. they don't want it to look, they don't want it to look, you know, and I just, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think it includes, I includes the people that are already there, but I don't think, um, I, I think it, it's meant to include everybody. Absolutely. You know, and I, myself, I, I, you know, I'm in my second marriage. Uh, it will be my last only because I basically, uh, after my first divorce, uh, which, you know, wasn't really a, a wonderful time. It never really is. I made the commitment saying, okay, the next relationship I get in, I am, uh, I am going to do everything in my power to keep it together. And, and there have been times when it's been quite a challenge, but I'm still there. My wife is still there and uh, we're still uh, doing what we need to, to do to, to, uh, to support each other and so forth. And I have to give my parent, my parents a lot of credit because of the fact that I recognized early on, even in my first marriage, how they were married for almost 62 years uh, at the time of my father's passing this year. I figured, first of all, they had gone through marriage encounter back in the 70s. And they had the experience, even though maybe it was only 20 or 30 years, it didn't matter. They had 20 or 30 years of experience. Why wouldn't I go to them to seek advice on certain issues, you know, and I did. And they were very helpful at the times that, that I did go to them. And even to this day, uh, in my present uh, relationship with my wife, um, my mother is just beyond uh, supportive. But one of the things that she taught us all is she does not, and neither did my father, they did not stick their noses in where they weren't asked. They might internally have their own personal observations, but they never shared them with anybody. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like that. It was only if we came to them as the kids, you know, in the family. And they they really did respect, you know, our relationships. They supported us in every way that they could. And I think that a lot of folks don't recognize the people around them. You know, you talk about community and sometimes we don't recognize the support that's right in front of us. Right. I think. Um, no kids. Really, no child really. Uh, um, I mean, divorce is it's not an easy thing for anybody. But, you know, in fact, people, 
relationships change every day. Mm-hmm. There's divorces and deaths and sense and relationships every day. And no child really truly cares whether or not their parents are happily married. What they do care is that their parents love each other. That's all. And that they love them. Mm-hmm. They could care less about, you know, whether or not they're physically together. Um, yeah. So, um, that's, you that's know. a very, that's a good point. I think that's a very valid, uh, valid point. And I would have to and say, I wasn't that, really ready to yeah. say that until after, because I was influenced heavily by upbringing to say that until after my parents died. Mm. Well, I, I feel very fortunate that I didn't, I often say that um, it's uh, my, my, I know that they love one another yeah. and I know that they love us. That's all yeah. that matters to yeah. me. And I, I know they, they loved other people. Duh. We all love other people. Yeah. You know, you know, this idea that there's just the one and then nobody else ever matters as much is just not true. Yeah. <laughs> Love yeah. all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons. That's what Jesus would have wanted us to do. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you, uh, you are also um, uh, two elements here. I want to touch on before we uh, uh, conclude our conversation here. Number one, uh, you are uh, as I and my wife are, have been for many years, animal lovers. We have uh, currently a big black king shepherd uh, named Angus. We've got seven chickens and two female cats that roam the house. And um, we absolutely love them all. We actually, we did at one point have nine cats. They were all indoor cats too, by the way. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And um, Mary and Joseph. I haven't said that in years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, And uh, at one time, we actually had three dogs at the same time. When we first moved here to Santa Barbara, we had three dogs. Um, But you, you also have a dog. Uh, If I'm correct in the pronunciation, uh, Jura is is the dog's name? Yeah, he was born and actually born in Scotland. One of my nephews, when he, you know, he was a a Labrador, so he was a wanderer. And he, you know, often go off and my nephew has got a he's he's of Scottish descent too and he'd say, Jura, Jura, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> he was well, a lab. He was a one well, they're not all the same. Uh, um no. Yeah, he uh, Jura's passed away. He's yeah. Uh, but he away. was rather influential in not just oh. your life, but also in the book that you have presented to us. Uh, that that we're talking about here on the program today called Life Flashes a Memoir. Tell us about uh, Jura's uh, impact. He taught me about um, the acceptance of uncertainty, about quiet confidence, and about humility in a way that I, I won't ever know love the way he showed it to me again. Um. From an from a you know animal perspective, um, and he could be a, he could be mischievous too. He could be, but you know, in all the years we were, you know, I he gave him care for ten years, and all those years, not ever did I ever see him do a mean, nasty, greedy, selfish thing ever. That's the truth. That's truth. 
That's not, I didn't make it up. It's truth. And yet he there were times and I'd be, he could be full of holy mischief. I'd be coming home from the, you know, I'd be coming home from the grocery store and I'd be unloading the SUV, the mini SUV with uh, grocery bags. And I'd have a couple in my arm and he'd jump out of the car and he'd be like, Oh, sorry, I'm going out. I'm going to run off into the yard. I'm going, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and he'd have, and he'd have, he'd have a smile on his face. You, you knew he was, you knew he was being naughty. Um, but yeah. he, he would, he would come back. Um, he gave me, uh, so much. I mean, I, again, I didn't intend to adopt him either. He was, he was a brother's dog. And then, um, the, uh, brother, brother and family and they, uh, they had just moved here from England and they, um, I said, look, um, I'm not working. They they had one child but by the time they moved here, they had three children under the age of five and he travels a lot with business. So, uh, I said, well, you know, if you want, I'll walk, I'll, I'll walk them every day. I'm not working. So, um, I said, okay. You know, and they said, oh, well, that'd be, that would be good. So I, we walked, we started walking together and, um, a year later they decided to move into Boston because, um, they wanted to be closer, close to the schools, the preschools their kids are going to. Mm-hmm. So they said, well, listen, why don't we, um, you can, he can be with, Jura can be with you during the week and then he'll come back to us on the weekend. I said, okay. I had never lived with anybody, had anybody in the house with me since I, I don't know, I left home, like, I don't know, thirties. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, how, what's this going to be like? But after he was there one day, I, I just felt so free being around him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh he loved to walk though if you didn't walk if you didn't you know he, he we walked like four or five hours a day you, oh, you wow. did, that was what he was used to and if you didn't walk if you didn't go he, he'd he go he would find <laughs> a way to go to the house and he'd be like i'm going you know yeah um and uh he was a kind of person he was a kind of person he was kind of dog for example if i um if i had a friend or i remember a friend coming over and we were talking on the love seat couch and um and he was and he was laying on a rug in front of us and he he's looking at me like and so he, he wants to come up and he's feeling uh, he's starting to feel a little possessive of me holy possession i would say and he wants <laughs> to come up on, he wants to come up on the couch in between us yeah and i say okay you know meanwhile then you know maybe a few months later we're at the i go to the, bring him to the laundromat and there's this young girl there and within five minutes he's in her lap Mm. you know i say that's cool <laughs> you know by the time i leave here he's coming home with me <laughs> oh, i love it yeah well, i know no. that a lot of folks also when 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 they have animals they uh and i know that we've done this with ours uh they tend to treat them like their children but you in addition to your dog you also uh, have worked with a lot of children over your uh, your life, and I'm curious as to the relationships that you've developed in that regard, and and how you worked with these kids. Well, I I haven't worked with kids um, for a while. I have, as far as motherhood goes, I've had a chance to. When I was an elementary education tutor. Um, I've had moments, you know, there's been moments for me to, to exercise uh, motherly, uh, motherly inclinations toward the children I taught, toward nieces and nephews, 
um, I wasn't, um, I was not called to be a biological mother. Mm -hmm. And it took me a, a long time um, to, because I, for years I thought, well, you, you know, if you, even if you're not married, you should be with kids somewhere. You're not really a woman if you're not, you know, you don't have kids yeah. somewhere. And I don't, I'm not really exactly sure where that came. You know, some of it was probably societal, some of it was probably just in my head. And then I just, I, um, I just, after decades, I, I let it go. Mm. Um, I appreciate, I love children. I hope to someday meet someone with children. Of course, they're going to be all grown up. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I love, um, I just, I, I, I enjoy talking with my, I don't, I, I don't talk with my nieces and nephews often now because they're all, in different parts of the country, but I just, I find it fascinating to talk with young people about their perspective um, about life and to see that we're all, you know, that to close the gap between the ages, so to speak, when you, when you talk with a young person that, you know, age doesn't, there's still, we have this much that we can share and learn from each other. I found it interesting, a, a survey that just came out, it had to do with the holidays and <clears throat> that um, the the typical holiday party, if you will, office party, yeah. for young people, they would like to have basically an afternoon party. But more importantly, they don't care about the alcohol, whereas folks who are much older at those holiday parties would they they want the alcohol and it's interesting how those kinds of things have changed in terms of what's important to the the younger set i know there've also been a lot of criticisms of of the the generations below us you and i uh in terms of uh, whether they care or not about this that or the other thing and it's like well yeah but they have to find themselves just like we did you know yeah. and really not that much different i went no, to a not really no, they're not, it, you know, but it's a societal thing that, I mean, I, I never understood this, you know, labeling generation X and generation X yeah. and generation it's, I, I It makes no sense to me at all. But I, I just went to a wedding um, about a couple of months ago, um, a family wedding, and they, they decided to bring in an Elvis impersonator to their wedding. Well, I had never seen that. It was hilarious. I mean, I think it might've been somebody that he, you know, that they knew. Um, yeah. um, he wasn't like a super professional, but he was funny. He could sing. Mm -hmm. And it was just, I was like, Oh, this is cool. You know, at first I was like, what the heck? This is a wedding. And then, then it was just, was so funny. It was like, everybody was into it. Oh, that's hilarious. You know, in my 80, 80 year old, I'm sorry, 89, in my nineties year old uncle, was um you know we had times when we were uh, dance you know what we were all in a big circle and people would step into the circle and dance and my 92 year old and I 92 year old uncle was dancing it was amazing mm. yeah amazing you know talk about bridging the gap and still you know has lost his wife of many 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 years a few years ago and he yeah he can still smile. He can still laugh, just like he always did. Yeah. Well, I have to say that my mother, she's uh, 89 this year. And uh, as yeah. I said, you know, uh, still grieving, I'm sure, over the loss of her husband, my father, who is not just oh, a father. Uh, uh, March 1st of this year. 
Oh, okay. So it was, yeah. uh, He was not just a father. He was a grandfather and a great grandfather. And um, she. Well, he said to me, my uncle, just to uh, uh, to comfort Mm -hmm. me. I remember when it, you know, when it first happened, I mean, he, he, uh, of course, he still loves her. Uh, But he, I remember when he first said it, he said, one minute you feel like, okay, I can deal with this, and the next minute you're. I said that, and I felt that way too. Where my, my both my parents are gone too. Mm. One minute you, um, but in some ways, I feel as though um, you you don't know how. Yeah. But through the years, you get used to the physical loss. I don't I don't know how you do that, but you do. And in some ways, I feel as though the relationship is both relationships are increasingly healthy because they're not in pain anymore. Well, there's that, and I can now talk to my yeah. father anytime I want. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't have to yeah. pick up the phone and dial him. Um, right. right. I want to. Yeah, I want to ask you real quickly uh, um, yeah. about some advice, if you can give to those listening, in regards to or tips, if you will, in regards to um, helping to to overcome a lot of the self-talk, the defeating self-talk that obviously it's going on all the time. It's part of what is referred to these days or has been referred to in many of the last few decades as the monkey mind that just, we want to succeed, but there's something inside of us that, that for some reason is not really on our side sometimes. How do we overcome that? What are some of the things you might offer? Well, I think again, putting, you know, um, Trusting God, even when, you know, when you don't understand, I'm finding age is helping me with that. I don't have to understand things. I don't have to like them. I remember saying that. I'd say in a God, uh, well, I do, I, I do love you, but I really don't like what's going on. God says, that's cool. All I ask is that you trust me. Yeah. So, and um, I would just say, um, I remember another time. You know, saying, you know, uh, God saying to me in prayer, you're not bitter about these circumstances. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? I said, this happened, this happened, this person betrayed me, this happened. He says, you're not bitter about these circumstances. So I, then I begin to cry. And I said, well, if I'm not bitter about these circumstances, what am I bitter about? And he says, you're, you're bitter because you don't trust that I love you, that I'm with you, and I'm going to move you through. I can help you go through this and anything. So I think of that. I also think of, I had dinner with a, a whole, a neighbor uh, the other day and her aunt is 92 and, and she just, she also just lost her husband of 46 years. And her aunt said to her, you know, he has a repeatedly 90 year old, two year old aunt has said to her, no matter what happens to you, cry a little bit, tears of joy, tears of sadness, and then laugh. Laugh, laugh, laugh. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. And that, you know, um, it's just, if you, if you, if you, if you're always looking to, you know, um, if you're always looking to it's be better when you're not ever going to be content. Happiness is fleeting. I bought a car. I'm seeing someone new. I got a new job. Contentment is something that only faith can teach you. And contentment, the thing about contentment, it over 
you can feel it no matter what circumstance, any circumstances, no exceptions. Mm -hmm. Faith will teach you that. Yeah. And you'll laugh too. Marie Reagan is my guest. Her book is Life Flashes, a memoir available uh, certainly at Amazon, but also through her website, which is uh, MarieHReagan.com, M-E-R-R-I-E-H. R-E-A-G-A-N.com. We will be linked to that website as well. And uh, you are listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host here on the program. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Giving you all kinds of choices today, if you will, different ideas, different concepts through uh, uh, Mary Reagan's book, Life Flashes, a Memoir, and uh, I want to thank you so much for giving us this time here on the program to uh, share your story and your memoir with our listeners, and I certainly encourage folks to pick up a copy, and uh, I, I look forward to having an opportunity down the road to talk with you further, because I venture, I don't know that you'd necessarily call it volume two, but I venture there's going to be more to come. Mm, no, this is no? it. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> this is it. This is the this is um the the book that just came out is a second edition. Ah, so I worked. I I was with a publisher last year, and then I decided to move to a new publisher this year. And um, this is we 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 put together the the new edition. The formatting is uh, the formatting is absolutely beautiful. Um, I had it re-edited, um, and um, it, I, I remember reading it before I submitted it to the publisher and, um, it, it reads like spreading smooth, creamy peanut butter. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so, and because it's in diary form, it's very easy to pick up and put down. First, right. I think, well, that'll appeal to young people. Now that I'm getting older and my attention spans, you know, I, it's, it's good for <laughs> old people too. Well, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Oh, you're quite welcome, Richard. Pleasure. I, I have three more questions to ask you that I ask all of my guests at the end of the program. Before I do that, though, I want to thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help. <laughs> Pardon me. Cough it up there. Uh, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We're here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. and 9 a.m. on Wednesdays with the December edition of five more programs, 8 a.m., Monday through Friday, streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. Podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations. And you can watch these interviews on YouTube. We have the channels there. Tell me your story, Richard Dugan. We hope that you will watch, subscribe, and click notification. And we also ask if you can support the work we're doing financially. We'd be ever so grateful. We thank those who have helped and those who will. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, we also ask that you take time during the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, to spend some time going within and listening to that still small voice as we talk about on pretty much every single program. With all of that being said, we ask the three questions to our special guests on this program, the first of which is, who is Mary Regan? Who am I? <laughs> I am a, I'm a former educator, small business owner, um, part-time freelance um, 
former part-time freelance uh, writer and first-time author. Mm. I live in in Massachusetts, the South Shore of Massachusetts. So I've lived here since I was five years old. And uh, I love being... I love being near the ocean. You and me both. You and me both. Mm-hmm. Second question. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What gets me out of bed in the morning? Well, lately, um, uh, if I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know sometimes. <laughs> uh I mean, lately, um, you know, usually it's it's prayer or just lately I um, I've been finding it difficult to come out of bed without being going to church, mm-hmm. uh, being with people um, um, in, in community in some way. This is a new thing for me. I, I've kind of been in and out of the church all through life. So um, but I, I find it. Um, I I. I, I find it if I don't if I don't do that, um, it influences me in a negative way. I can skip a day or so, but I don't know that just that sense of not being. I think it's being with other people um, with whom you have something in common, sharing faith. Um, dance is another thing. I mean that mm-hmm. that helps me get a bit for the similar reasons. Uh, so. I guess. And finally, what was your best day? No such thing. <laughs> every day is a day. Every day is the best day. Every day that you're, you know, every day that you're, um, every day is a, every day is a good, there's very, you know, as you, as you go through the years, there's success and failure feel very similar. They're not the same. I'm not saying that, mm-hmm. but they're all, they're all very similar. So the, when you embrace them as such, you don't have the, you don't experience these highs and lows of mood mm-hmm. that you have in the past. Um, it's just as gratifying to persevere through um, challenges as it is to to persevere through successes that change your life in ways that are challenging. Mm. Once again, I really do appreciate your time. Thank you so much for sharing with us here on the program. You're welcome, Richard. Good wishes to you. And I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. Until our next broadcast podcast videocast, love to lol. Jeanette, I'm still listening. Dad, continue to be happy because I am. Smokey, I will see you on the other side. And to my dear friend Zorro, aho, aho.